I'm a student of history, and uh, history was always my favorite subject throughout high school and uh, the collegiate level. Uh, I even today read several books a week, typically. Uh, Many of them have to do with theology. That's what you would expect. Um, But theology books aren't just like... uh, books about the Bible. The Bible's about history, so the theology books have to explain history, how, how the story's actually unfolding and who's the king and who's the speaker. And it, it, it's like, it's like uh, to me, studying the Bible and studying the books that I have to read every week, it's like I can see it in my mind. Um, it's like God's given me this ability for it to like like you would watch a movie, I can see it happening in my mind and hear the characters uh, saying their lines. Uh, and to me, that's just like watching history be re- replayed out. Now, I realize I'm on dangerous ground here because when I say I love history, I realize I've ostracized about half of you uh, because you don't. And I, and I get that. So bear with me for a few minutes as I try to uh, find some common ground with you. For those who don't love history, uh, let me appeal to your your most basic humanness. Uh, most uh, the most human characteristic of all is to care about what you care about, and what you care about is you. And that's kind of the very base basic level of being a human being. Uh, you you're interested in the things you're interested in. You care about what you care about. And uh, you're interested in you and your family and your kids and things that affect you. Uh, and my thesis, this is uh, my thesis as we start this morning is simply this: uh, history will liven up for you a little bit when you realize that history is your story. That changes your perspective, and suddenly history gets more interesting when you realize, wait, this is. My backstory. This is how I got here. This is how the world got to be the way the world is right now. I mean, if you ever just watch the news, uh, current events, whatever, and scratch your head and say, how did the world get here? History. This is how it got here. Certain things have happened that got us to the place we are right now, both with leaders and politics and religion and and community and society and culture, things have happened, for good or bad, and those things in a series of events have brought us to where we are. History explains how you got to where you are presently, but history also has a lot of signposts pointing to where your life is going. A lot of people think, well, history is just a dusty old thing of the past, History holds a lot of clues about what might happen tomorrow. This is another reason history might be more interesting than you first think it is, because by looking at what has happened, you can often see what's about to happen. Now, for us as a church, we've been studying the Old Testament uh, for about 37, 8 weeks now. It has not been dry and dusty and boring. It's been quite relevant and and alive to us and we're telling now the last story of the old testament and getting our hearts ready for the birth of christ here at christmas 
But as we're finishing up the story of the Old Testament, we're seeing very clearly how when they come back from the exile, the Jews are now going to rebuild a temple and rebuild Jerusalem and reconstitute a society and try to refine their national identity. And this is setting the stage for the main hero of the Bible, Jesus Christ, who's about to step on the stage of history here for us in a few weeks when we get more to the Christmas story. But for them, that th- this period of time is the return of the exile. It's really called the second temple period of Judaism. Now, when you think about Jesus, I don't want you to think as a historical character. Jesus is somebody who's affecting your life right now. He's going to affect your life this week and tomorrow. And that's going to be very real and very relevant for you. Uh, These old stories are giving you context for your own life. And they're telling you, especially from a spiritual point of view, why things have happened the way they did. And how you got to where you are spiritually this morning. There are some elements of these stories because the culture is so very different than your American culture that do cause us some complications. When we hear stories about kings, we're disconnected because we don't have one. We never have had one. When we hear stories about exiles and temples and idols and emperors, To us, that's all very foreign language from an American cultural point of view. We don't have any of those things in our culture and have never had those things. But the Bible is making an argument. And the argument is sometimes lost on the modern church, so I'm going to keep saying it, especially for Cornerstone, until you can fully embrace it. The Bible is making an argument that you are Abraham's children... If you have Abraham's faith in God. So when you're saying, well, this is about the Jews, this is about temple, this is about kings, this is about kingdoms, and that's not my life, the Bible's making a different argument. It's saying it is your life, because if you have Abraham's faith in God, then you're Abraham's children, you are Israel, and all of the things in the Old Testament that maybe you were told didn't apply to you, 100% apply to you because now you're reading your own family story. It's like doing a DNA search or an Ancestry.com search and suddenly realizing you're related to everybody in the Old Testament. That is your extended spiritual family. And now it's suddenly more interesting to you because not only is that where you came from spiritually... But it's also pointing you to family reunions that are still to come with your family. If you believe in Abraham's God, if you believe in Israel's king, then you are Abraham's children. And that will change everything about your perspective on the Old Testament. Because we're now, gosh, 4,000 years on the other side of Abraham. And we want to know how we got to this present place of being in the kingdom of God. Now you talk about a wild world in which you live. Listen, all mainline denominationalism is going to go into absolute upheaval in your lifetime. Buckle your seatbelt, okay? The articles this week coming out of North Carolina, there's a massive wave of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of churches leaving the United Methodists in North Carolina 
uh, over marriage and performing marriages for same-sex couples and all kinds of drama happening in North Carolina. The Methodists are fracturing into multiple denominations right now before your eyes. And they're going to be, the Methodist church will look completely different another year from now than it looks right now. Uh, another Baptist seminary came out this week and absolutely took a caveman, chauvinist stance against women. And just berated women and said they have no place being in leadership in a pastoral role in a church. At, no argument cited, no Bible cited, you know. Uh, uh, and the comments that followed on those uh, articles breaking look like the body of Christ is divided and shooting their guns at each other and blowing each other up. And you've got people on one side and the other side just, just hurling stuff at each other. Oh, yeah, mainline denominations are going to look completely different very soon. And I think where we're going to go is the, both the Methodists, the Pentecostals, and the Baptists, who are still sane when this is all done, are all going to be non-denominational. That's where I think we're going. Matter of fact, that's where I think we're going. I think we're going to get to a place now where you're not going to be able to align yourself with a group of people that are so radically on the wrong side of the issues. Anyway, brace yourself because it's not only about where you've been, the world's changing very quickly and some of these issues are, we're trying to sort out about where things are going. Now, while we're looking forward, uh, we're in the kingdom of God, but we realize the kingdom of God, it started, we're a part of it, uh, it's broken out globally right now, it's expanding like leaven in dough, Jesus said. It's expanding like a mustard seed that turns into a tree and gets bigger and bigger until the birds of the air can come and live in this giant tree. The kingdom of God starts small with Jesus and a handful of people, and it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. It's gone global. And listen, and that's why we've gone global at Cornerstone. If you ever wonder, what are we doing all over the world? We believe that's exactly what God wants us to do, is to take the gospel and the kingdom as global as we can take it. One small church here in North Texas, we're going to try to do our very best at taking it global. Now, the kingdom of God is spreading, but it's not, it's in its inaugural phase. In other words, the whole world hasn't bent the knee to Jesus. The whole world does not acknowledge his kingship. The whole world is not following the Sermon on the Mount and loving their neighbor as their self and doing unto others as they would have them do unto them. The whole world is not following the kingdom teaching or the king, God's king that he sent to the earth. So we all understand that while we're sitting here in the kingdom of God this morning, there are still some future aspects that the Bible has talked about in the kingdom that we haven't even seen yet. There are some bigger things that are still going to happen. One of those is a resurrection of the dead and a resurrection of planet earth. A renewal of all things. So that's still in the future. We know that the king's going to come again. That's still in the future. Now, the point of many of the Bible writings, like well, the one we're going to be in this morning, the end of the book of Zechariah, is hope. Uh, and I want you to know that's a good reason to write something. Uh, if you want a good reason to post something on Facebook or start a blog, how about giving people hope? I tell you what, news drives me crazy. I, I got so stressed out one day last week 
that I said to myself, no country music today and no news. And I was in the car driving and it just hit me and I'm like, I'm, I'm just in such a foul mood. I can't handle any depressing music and I can't handle any, you know, and so, you know, you go find Journey in Boston and some good stuff that'll elevate and spiritually minister to you and, uh, you know, and just turn the bad news off. I just want to say this. God's people, please hear me. Don't underestimate the power of hopeful words. Listen, you ought to just try, if you doubt me, just try and experiment this week. Go to work tomorrow, go to school tomorrow, and just, just make a point that you're going to be an optimistic, hopeful speaker. And greet people and say, well, you look lovely today. Well, listen, I really appreciate you, my co-worker. Listen, can I get you some, uh, a latte? I'm on my way down to start. Just be optimistic and hopeful and share love and, and goodwill. Watch what comes back to you. Watch how this transforms your life. So I want you to know some of the Bible writings are there just for really one big reason, to give you hope. God's trying to do that to you. He's trying to talk to you in such a way that you leave here this morning and go out to face the world you live in and say, okay, I feel good about where I'm going. I feel good about living for Jesus this week. I can do this. God's with me. I'm not alone. We win. It's going to be okay. God sees what's happening in my life. I'm not forgotten. All of those themes are woven into Zechariah. And all of those themes, that's the end of the Old Testament, those themes are similarly woven into the, 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 the apocalypse of John, the book of Revelation. The whole book is about hope. It's about inspiring you who are living in difficult circumstances to have hope while you're carrying out the mission of taking the gospel to the nations. While you're trying to make disciples, while you're trying to care for your family, despite hardships you face, despite governments that seem to muck everything up, keep going. Keep going despite spiritual resistance from the powers of darkness. Have hope because God sees you and you have already overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of your testimony. Keep going forward. The kingdom of the dragon will fall. Book of Revelation. You want to call it a game of thrones? And God wins the game of thrones. That's what the book of Revelation is going to tell you. So have hope. Uh, live with hope. Be optimistic. Now, of course, we want to know what every generation of Christians have always wanted to know. When? That one word has plagued every generation of Christians because we all want to know when is it going to happen. Now, let, let me see if I can just help us all. So when are things going to change? When is this other shoe going to drop? When will the resurrect? When will the second coming be? When will the renewal happen? This has always been the case with God's people wanting to know the when word. And as you study the Old Testament, these books in particular, will God restore the kingdom at this time? God is now the time? Book of Acts after the resurrection. Lord, is now the time of the renewal? Is now the time? This is what God's people have always asked. And God keeps telling His people, do not focus on the timing. Doesn't that really irritate us all? You know? But that's what God's telling us. And it's what He's always told His people. Here's what I'm going to do. I promise you I'm going to do it. My track record is impeccable. We all say, when? God says, no, don't focus on when. 
instead of focusing on when, here's what he always says to us. Focus on being God's people. Don't spend your focus watching signs and watching all of this uh, prophetic mumbo-jumbo trying to figure out the secret code of the end of the age and who's the Antichrist. Stop all that nonsense. It's It's all bogus. Stop it. Instead, focus on the mission I have given you to perform. Focus on being God's people. Focus on making disciples. Focus on being living images to your workplace, to your community, to your school, to your family. God says, wherever I have put you, focus on what your divine vocation is. You're to be living images of Almighty God, reflecting God to all of those around you. You just focus on that and let me worry about the timing. Now, that's some good background for us. Let me recap for those of you who were traveling on the holiday last week. Last week, we covered chapters 1 through 8 of the book of Zechariah. I'm going to just like this for you, okay? Here's what chapters 1 through 8 of Zechariah are about. It opens with a challenge where Zechariah challenges them. And here's their challenge. Return to God and don't be like your parents. Everybody remember that from last week? Return to God, don't be like your parents. Now, we, we unpacked that last week. won't have time this morning, so be sure you listen to that. Return to God. Same word as repent. Don't be like your parents. And then what follows are eight night visions and they're in couplets they're in mirrored pairs and and then after the eight visions he comes back with the challenge again and he says to them in the closing challenge okay this is what god's going to do he's going to bring his king he's going to bring his kingdom and the people are asking now when is it time and god says don't worry about the timing instead are you going to be people who are ready for god's kingdom when it shows up God's kingdom is coming. Are you going to be the kind of people who are ready to engage it when it shows up? Now that's the first half of the book of Zechariah, and it's mostly dreams and visions. The second half of the book of Zechariah is very different from the first half. The last six chapters are basically a collage of images and and visions and poetry all put together. And if you want to go this week and, and read the last six chapters of the book of Zechariah, it, it, it's like reading a bunch of your dreams again. It's, just, it's not going to make any sense at all. It, it's very confusing, especially 2,500 years later to our Western eyes. It looks, it looks like I, I can't understand even what's happening here. But when you realize the context of Zechariah and you go slow and... You fast forward and see how Jesus and the disciples understood Zechariah. Then it begins to make a whole lot of sense. So I'm going to try to tell you from a very high level uh, what Zechariah is saying for his generation. That's 400 years before Christ. And more importantly, or as importantly, I'm going to fast forward 400 years and let the disciples and Jesus get the book of Zechariah. It's the end of their Bible. They're reading the closing of their Bible and they're applying it, reapplying it freshly to their lives. And it's going to be very important for you to see how Jesus and the disciples applied the book of Zechariah. So uh, I think it should be revealing for you to know that these six chapters, last six chapters of Zechariah, are some of the most important chapters in the Old Testament to Jesus and his disciples. You say, how do we know this? 
Because the last six chapters of the book of Zechariah are quoted 71 times in the New Testament. Either direct quotes or direct allusions to the words of Zechariah. That's a lot. And this is a small book. And just six chapters of this book. But it's the end of the Bible that Jesus and his disciples had. And so they're taking the end of their Bible and they're like, I think this has something to do with what's happening right now. They took the end of the Old Testament and they just reapplied it to their lives 400 years later. And they said, look, it looks like this is all coming true right before our eyes. So 31 of those allusions and quotes is in the book of Revelation. 27 of those quotes are in the Gospels. So these are like Jesus uh, being quoted by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So Jesus, in collaboration with Matthew, Mark, and John, 27 times are going to take words and phrases out of these six chapters and say, Jesus did this right in front of your eyes. We are seeing this. Uh, Let me say it to you this way. Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and, and Paul, and these guys, they're reading the book of Zechariah the way you read the book of Revelation. In other words, you, when you want to say, I wonder what the future looks like, I wonder how the world ends, I wonder what's going to happen at the end of this story, you go over to the book of Revelation and start reading and say, oh, this is what the end looks like. You know, I saw new Jerusalem coming down and new heaven and new earth and all of it. You're seeing that. They're reading the end of their Bible. There is no New Testament for them. They're going to write it. Their Bible ends over here with Ezra and Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, the story we've been telling. And so they're looking at Zechariah that we're studying this morning, and they're thinking, this is the end of the Bible. These are the last words that God has to say for us. Nothing's been written for 400 years. Now Jesus comes onto the scene, and we're looking now at what's happening And we see Zechariah happening right before our eyes. They're basically saying, see, this is what God said would happen. Here it is. See, this is what God promised. It's happening right now in our city, in our midst, right before our eyes. Now, again, these chapters were written to have hope. Because when they saw that God was keeping his word and things were happening right now in their homes, in their community, that Zechariah promised would happen. They're like, God's word's coming to pass right now. How cool is this? God's sending his king. God's saving Israel. God's doing all of these things. And I think this is one of the reasons that we're disconnected from religion in the modern generation. We don't see God doing things in our generation because our spiritual eyes are closed to that. Let me be careful what I'm saying. I'm not saying God's not doing things in your home and in your community and in your neighborhood. I'm saying we're not seeing it. He is doing things. I see miracles happening all the time. I see people being saved and people serving like Christ and people's lives being changed all the time. And so my challenge to you this morning is be looking for it. Be an optimistic people, not a pessimistic people. Believe that God is still in the saving of 96-year-old business. Believe that God is still in the answering prayer business. Believe that God has not left you alone and He is watching over your life and you are His living image to Keller High School. You are His living image to the city of Fort Worth. You are God's living image to, to Park Glen and, and, and to the bluffs and uh, to, to, to the neighborhoods here. 
You're God's living image to this community. Grab a hold of your divine vocation and watch what God does through your life. Chapters 9 through 11 speak about, here's the subject, a messianic king that will come. God's king is going to come and fix this mess. That's what a messianic savior king is. God's going to send a king who's going to fix and set to right all that's wrong in this world. So now the story about the messianic king is chapters uh, 9 through 11, and it's in two parts. So let me deal with 9 and 10. In chapters 9 and 10, Zechariah paints a word picture of Jesus as a triumphant king. That's the first picture he paints. So in your mind, I want you to paint a picture of a triumphant king. Uh, he's not riding on a horseback. He's actually riding on a donkey. But And I want you to see a cobblestone street, and I want you to see the king... Uh, riding down the street, and I want you to see the people bowing and, and, and honoring the king as he rides into the city gate. That's the picture that Zechariah is painting. I'm going to read the verse, and it's going to be very familiar to you. Zechariah 9.9 Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Let me pause right here. Zion is Jerusalem. It's actually one of the hills of Jerusalem. When you guys get to Israel next year, uh, and you see the city of Jerusalem and where the temple was, you'll look just this way to the south, and this one of the hills that makes up the city of Jerusalem is Zion. Mount Zion, the city of David. Tomb of David is there. It's where David's capital was right there. It just, you know, we're talking about yards, not miles, from, from the temple of Jerusalem. Zion is another word for Jerusalem. Just We'll use them as synonyms this morning. Rejoice greatly, daughter Jerusalem, daughter Zion. Daughter Jerusalem, see your king comes to you, righteous, victorious, but lowly, humble king, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now again, that statement is stuck in Zechariah over here in the Old Testament, and you're like, what does that have to do with anything? A humble king comes riding on a donkey. Well, those of you who read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John already know what's coming, right? You already know how they have applied that verse. They're reading the end of their Bible and they're like, has there ever been a time in recent history when a king came riding on a donkey and the people went crazy? They're like, what? That just happened. All of these things are happening real time for them. So God's promising in the book of Zechariah, the day's coming. I'm going to send my king to Jerusalem on a donkey and he will establish God's rule on earth. He will bring God's kingdom to earth. Now, I want to use words interchangeably. Stay with me here. In your New Testament, you'll see the gospel writers use this phrase, kingdom of God. And then you'll see, like Matthew will use, uh, and others will use, kingdom of heaven. And you're like, are those two different things? Or, or what is that? They are the same thing. But the Jews are very sensitive about writing the name of God. Now, I'm going to go back to all those books I read every week. When you read the books I read every week, if they're written by a Jewish author, when they get to the name of God, they won't write it out. Because they try to be very... You know how you're sensitive about taking the name of God in vain? They're very sensitive about writing the name of God out. They want to honor. So they'll do a lot of times when the books I'm reading, they'll say... If they say, you know, God is in His holy temple, they'll do capital G dash D. They'll leave the vowel out. And you're supposed to know as a Gentile when you're reading this, they're trying to honor God, not be disrespectful. They're trying to say, don't take God's name in vain. Do you see this stands for God? They keep moving. 
The New Testament writers are sensitive to this because they know their audience is both Jew and Gentile, but mainly Jew to start with. You with me? So they're very sensitive about writing and saying over and over, kingdom of God, kingdom of God, kingdom of God, kingdom of God, knowing there's going to be a Jewish objection that says, you need to stop taking God's name in vain. You with me? So a lot of times the writers instead will say kingdom of heaven, knowing that God's rule, God's space is heaven. And kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven mean the same thing. All right, there's a little just uh, word lesson, okay? Zechariah says, daughter Jerusalem, God's going to send his king to you riding on a donkey. Now, from where we're sitting, we already know who this is. (laughs) Where Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are sitting, they didn't realize until later that all of this was the fulfillment of the prophet when they analyzed what Jesus did, reread the end of their Bible, they're like, wait, that is just what happened right here. And then they sat down and wrote these things out. So, so not surprisingly, all four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all refer to Zechariah, this verse in Zechariah, and all four of them chronicle this story. That's how important Zechariah is to them. Let me read the story. Matthew 21, verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt. Untie them, bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, say, The Lord needs them. And I promise they'll send them right away. Don't don't worry about that. Verse 4. This took place. Now Matthew is saying... All of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Matthew is saying, this is exactly what Zechariah said would happen. Now he quotes Zechariah, watch this. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. And a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and they spread them on the road. And the crowds that went ahead of them and those that followed were shouting. So let's watch the words. They're shouting. They're shouting the words, some of the words that Zechariah spoke. They're shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Watch Mark. Now that's Matthew. Watch what Mark says. Blessed is the coming kingdom of what? Mark is saying, I see this as the Davidic covenant coming to pass. God has sent the promised son of David to be our king. Hosanna in the highest. Let's see what brother Luke said. Luke says this. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Luke says the king has come. Which king? The king that Zechariah keeps prophesying that God will send to set the world right. Let's see what Brother John says. They took palm branches and went out to meet him. And the people cried, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Now, all of this is very important, and it's hard for me to unpack it in a short amount of time. You know, the day they crucified him, Pilate made them write a superscription and nail it above his head in three languages so all the world could read it, Greek, Hebrew, and Latin. And the superscription said, now the the sign was your crime. This man's a thief. They nailed that to the cross. 
But for Jesus' cross, this is what sign is hanging over his head while he's crucified. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Now, you may have read that a thousand times and not understood the significance of it. God's keeping his word to you. The king has come. You'll see more how it ties in in just a minute with his rejection. But this street drama. So in your mind, I want you to paint a picture. We're standing on the Mount of Olives. The disciples come with the donkey. They throw their cloak on. Jesus gets on. And they're going down the highway now. They're about to go up through the Golden Gate, through the temple. And the people are lining the streets. Here's, blessed is the... Now, what's not clear is, are they calling Jesus their king? Or, when they see Jesus on the donkey, and they, people begin to play their part in the scene. When they see Jesus on the donkey, they're like, oh, we know this story. This is the story from Zechariah. They all knew it. And so everybody rushes together to play their part in the street drama. What does the street drama say? The king is coming to Jerusalem. Now, here's what we're not sure on. Some people may have said, this is our king, this Jesus. A big group of the people may have just been saying, it's time for the Passover next week, and we're out here uh, uh, doing street drama from Old Testament passages. This guy's pretending to be the king of Israel riding up, and our part is to, to cry out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord because God one day is going to send our king. Now, it's not altogether clear. We'll maybe talk more about that at Easter. You'll have to decide which of the two you think it is. I clearly think Jesus is saying, see, I'm here. God has sent his king, but I'm not sure it was readily apparent for everyone. So he's pictured as a, a triumphant king, and that really was the fulfillment moment of his message. Now, here's what I want to challenge you guys with. You guys are really sharp Bible people. Jesus proclaimed a kingdom message. Now, people are going to say to Jesus later, if you're the king, just tell us. Pilate's going to say, are you the king? He's going to say, well, you say I'm the king. Do you say this of yourself or do other people tell you this about me? This is the big drama. Are you that king or not? Well, here's one thing I know for certain. Jesus' favorite message was a kingdom message. Now, I, I try to mix things up a lot for you. You might have got bored under the preaching of Jesus because he seemed to drive one nail over and over and over. And that was the kingdom of God is here. Are you ready to be a part of it? Watch this little montage fly by. When Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, synonymous. So here we go. Matthew 4 from that time, after John the Baptist was killed, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. It's here, right now. Next chapter, Matthew 5, Beatitudes, Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is what? And verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is what? And as you go... From here today, please proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. It's here. In Matthew 13, Jesus told a parable. What are the parables about? Well, let's look. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed seed in a field. You ever hear that one? Or he told him another parable, verse 31. 
the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that I quoted a few minutes ago, which he planted and become a great, great tree. Or Matthew 13, 33, he told him another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that woman put in dough. And it began to spread through the dough. And I alluded to that just a moment ago. And then Jesus said in 1344, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hid in a field. And in Matthew 13:45, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. And in verse 47, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a net let down into a lake that caught all kinds of fish. You know who's going to be in the kingdom of God? Help me out. All kinds of fish. Some weird fish and some good fish and some uh, whiskered fish and some not whiskered fish and some slimy fish and some scaly fish and all kinds of fish. And we're all here, aren't we? I mean, this is us. You want to know what the kingdom of God's like? It's just a big old cross slice of the world. That's what it's like. All kinds of people be in the kingdom of God, and I'm so happy about that. And then in Matthew 18, Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wants to settle some accounts. Then in Matthew 20, Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to the workers, hire workers for a vineyard. And then Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet. Now, if I preach this 52 weeks in a row, y'all would fire me. Can somebody please tell me what Jesus' favorite sermon topic was? The kingdom of heaven is here. Get in it and find your mission in it and be a people worthy to live in the kingdom and accept the king and live by the king's values. Jesus' message was clearly a kingdom message. I travel all over the world speaking to pastors And I tell them, you don't have three sermons in your repertoire of hundreds that even talk about the kingdom of God. We're broken. This is Jesus' whole message. The king is here, and so therefore the kingdom is here. And if you want to be in the kingdom, you're going to have to bend the knee to the king. And you're going to have to say, my allegiance is to God's king that he sent to the earth. So now after preaching these sermons, the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. Jesus jumps on the back of a donkey and rides down the street and everybody starts shouting, The King is here! Blessed is the Son of David! Blessed is the Davidic King! Blessed is God's King! Blessed are... Yeah, suddenly these stories are coming to life. The Bible is coming true before their eyes. Because hundreds of years earlier, Zechariah said, This is going to happen. And listen, when God says something, we're like, yeah, it's going to happen. Yeah, that's what they've always been saying. God's going to come. Jesus is going to return. My parents said it. My grandparents said it. You know what? And one day he is. That's the way this works. He's going to keep his promises. And one day he is. The point is not to be the people who are here when it happens. The point is to be God's people in every generation while we're waiting for it to happen. Sometimes we think, oh, we want to be those last people. Why? Your parents weren't, or your grandparents weren't, your great-grandparents weren't, and they were good people. And Paul didn't make it to the rapture, and Peter didn't make it. You know what? But they changed the world for Christ in their generation. I don't think God's trying to get us to be a people who hold out to the end so we cannot be eyewitnesses to the, to the second advent. I think what God's trying to do is say to us, hey, the kingdom is here right now. How about start being like kingdom people? How about start pulling more people into my kingdom so that when things come to their conclusion, the kingdom is robust and the net is filled with every kind of fish. 
some Romanian fish and some Indian fish and some Nepali fish and some Brazilian fish and some Nicaraguan fish and some Mexican fish and some German fish and all kinds of fish. Maybe even some Canadians. You never know. All kinds of fish, you know. Uh, And listen, that's the way we ought to be looking at the world. We are fishers of men and we should not discriminate on what kind of fish we fish for. You ought to like crappie fishing and cat fishing and bass fishing and all of it. Because it's all the same to you. There are people that God loves and they need to hear the gospel. And they need their, we don't care about what shape their eye is. We don't care about what their family heritage is. People are people. And God told us to love those people. So now Zechariah does something different. Now Zechariah says, okay, you got that picture. The humble king riding on a donkey. Zechariah says, let me paint you a different picture. So now he puts two staffs, shepherd staffs, in the hands of his king. And he makes him out to be a shepherd. So that's now uh, ch- chapters 11, uh, 9 and 10, where the king who's coming. Chapter 11 is now uh, the king as a shepherd. And so now the shepherd's walking among the sheep. The sheep are Israel. And there's other shepherds. He's not the only shepherd. And they're bad shepherds. And, and, and he's a good shepherd. Let me just read a few verses. Zechariah eleven four. This is what the Lord my God says. Shepherd the flock marked for slaughter. We call that foreboding in literature, foreshadowing. When God calls Israel a flock marked for slaughter, I don't think it's going to go well. Okay? It's going to be very rough history for Israel. And if you look back, it was a very rough history. The Romans eventually annihilated them, and they were scattered for, for modern history. Yeah, but he said, I want you to shepherd that flock. So God's king is asked to take the role of lead shepherd over the flock of Israel. But Israel already has some shepherds. So now this lead shepherd that God appoints dismisses some of the other shepherds. We're not given any details. We don't know if he knocked them in the head or just told them, you're terrible, get out of here. We don't know exactly what happened. But three shepherds are, are run off. And here's what it says. Verse 8, in one month I got rid of three shepherds. The flock detested me. They were bad shepherds, and so the good shepherd got rid of the bad shepherds, and what did the people respond? We hate you for getting rid of the bad shepherds. The flock detested me, and I grew weary of them. And I said, you know what? I'll just not be your shepherd then. Let the dying die. If if that's the way you want to be, just let the dying die and the perishing perish, and let those who are left eat, eat one another's flesh. Verse 12, I told them, if you think it best and you don't want me to be your shepherd, then give me pay. But listen, if you don't want to give me pay, then keep it. I don't really care. So they gave me 30 pieces of silver. Does that number ring a bell to anybody? And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, this handsome price that they valued me. That's said tongue-in-cheek, by the way. I'm not worth two red cents to them. And if that's all you're worth, just throw it to the potter. Well, I don't want to go tell the New Testament story, but after Judas got his 30 pieces, he went back down to the Sanhedrin and said, I don't want it, it's blood money. And they said, we don't want it, it's blood money. And they went and bought a potter's field with it to bury bodies that no one would claim. So I just want you to know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are reading the book of Zechariah, and they're saying, whoa, 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 whoa. This has actually happened already in our lifetime before our own eyes. 400 years later, they're reading this and they pick up the story of Zechariah and they overlay it onto their lives. Listen, Jesus is being pictured by Zechariah as the good shepherd. Does that sound familiar at all to the New Testament? 
Matthew 9.36, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless. They were like sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus shows up and he says, I'm going to help you guys out. And he begins to speak to them in John chapter 10 and he says to them these words, I am the good shepherd. I know you've got some leaders, but they don't care about you. They don't love you. They're not worried about the poor. They're not worried about the hurting. They're not worried about the lost. And I've come to the lost sheep of Israel. I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd will not lord over you. Look what the good shepherd will do. The good shepherd will lay down his life for the sheep. Now here's one of those plot twists. Script flip that the Bible's famous for right here. So the script gets flipped. And the king that they've been looking for for so long, God sends them. And when God sends them this king, this shepherd, they reject him. Let me read John chapter 10. And I'll let you hear how John saw the book of Zechariah coming to pass. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. For the Jews who were there gathered around him. And they said, how long? Do you keep us in suspense, Jesus? If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. Well, if you knew your Bible, he just did. When he said, I am the good shepherd, he's clearly going to Zechariah and saying, Zechariah painted two pictures, a king and a shepherd. I'm riding into Jerusalem as the king, and I am the good shepherd who lays down. I'm telling you, I am the king. And yet, what are the people saying? If you're the king, why don't you speak plainly? He's like, you're not hearing me. You're not seeing what I'm doing. Jesus answered, said, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name, they testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. What did Jesus just claim right there? Equality with God the Father. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I've shown you many good works from my Father. For which of these do you stone me? (laughs) That's a good good statement, isn't it? So you're going to let me go today, you're going to fire me? For which of my good deeds here at work are you going to fire me? Yeah, save the company thousands of dollars, I've been a good faithful employee. Now for which of those good things are you going to fire me? Uh, Jesus puts that in a very clever way. I've, I, I've, I've made the blind see, I've healed the leper. For which of the good things that I've done do you, do you now seek to kill me? And they said to him, we're not stoning you for any good work. We're stoning you for blasphemy. Because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Guys, who read the Old Testament and claim it's the Word of God, isn't that what God tells you He's going to do? He's going to send a king to rescue the world, and He'll be like a king, and He'll be like a shepherd, and He'll be a suffering servant. And this is, God's been telling us that for thousands of years. And when God does what He keeps telling us He's going to do, we're looking at God like, what are you doing? No, I'm telling you what I'm going to do. And you're not seeing it and you're not hearing it. God's shepherd is rejected by the Jewish leaders who are also pictured as bad shepherds. And because they reject Jesus, God hands the flock over to the bad 
shepherds, the bad leaders, the Pharisees of Jesus' day. Here's what it says, Zechariah eleven sixteen. For I'm going to raise up shepherd, it's really the Pharisees and the leaders of their day, over the land who will not care for the lost. Yeah, I think that describes them very well. They do not seek the young. They do not heal the injured. They do not feed the healthy. But they're very glad to eat the meat of the choice sheep. Well, they're all about the money and the, and the position and the tearing off their hooves, Zechariah says. Well, it seems that DNA Israel doesn't want Jesus to be her king. It's not the kind of king that they want. They want another kind of king. So we're, this is written in a way where Zechariah wants you to ask a question. Okay, so God's going to send his king and they're going to reject him. And here's the question Zechariah wants you to be asking. Will Israel's rejection of her king last forever? It just seems like she's going to reject her king, but will she reject her king forever? I mean, is that where we're at? Uh, We're stuck in a cycle from which there is no deliverance? So the final section of Zechariah, chapter 12, 13, and 14, answers this question. Will Israel reject her king forever? The last three chapters answer this question, and the answer is no. No, Israel's rejection will not last forever. So Zechariah paints another picture, a word picture. And this time he paints a picture for his audience of the messianic kingdom of God. God's going to send a king and set up a kingdom. But he paints the picture as a new Jerusalem, a renewed city of Jerusalem. Now, this can be very confusing to you guys, because when I say New Jerusalem, your mind flashes to the book of Revelation, and you're like, ooh, there's a city coming down out of heaven, etc., etc. It's all symbolic. It's not literal. Zechariah is describing God sending his king and his kingdom, and he's going to use a third metaphor now, because he wants to paint it a bunch of different ways. The kingdom of God is like a renewed Jerusalem, like Jerusalem being made new. Now, uh, i got about ten minutes here, and i got to focus your attention on what I'm about to say because this is going to change the way you interpret the Bible. So listen very carefully. Cornerstone's understanding of the word Israel is pivotal to determine how you're going to interpret the Bible. How you interpret one word Israel is going to change how you interpret your Bible. For example, is Israel Abraham's children through DNA? Or is Israel Abraham's children through faith in God's King? You have two choices. Is Israel genetic, biologic descendants of Abraham? Or is Israel children of Abraham by faith in Jesus Christ? And you have to decide whether it's A or B. And depending on what you decide is going to determine how you read your whole Bible. Now I can tell you, (laughs) you read the book of Galatians and the book of Romans. Paul has answered for himself. And Paul has said, B. Those who have Abraham's faith in God are Israel. And in the book of Romans, he says, not all those who are 
Israel, DNA Israel, are Israel. But only those who are like Abraham and have Abraham's faith in God, that's real Israel. Now, just having that understanding is totally going to change the way you read your Bible. Because when you're reading, now you're going to be asking yourself, okay, are they talking about DNA here? Are they talking about faith? And I can tell you, once we get to these stories going into the New Testament, we're definitely talking about faith in God. So now we're talking about a new Israel in our services and how God's going to establish a new Israel. And the new Israel that God wants to establish isn't Jewish, it's a multi-ethnic people. The net with all the different kinds of fishes in it, that's God's Israel. Uh, God's not just like, okay, I'm going to say biologic people from Abraham's line, everybody else is going to hell. No, that's not what God's saying at all. He's saying, I'm going to save anybody who has faith like Abraham has faith. I don't care what color you are, what shape your eye is, what your your DNA uh, markers are. I will save you if you put your faith in God's Son and repent of your sins. Because then you've entered into a covenant relationship with God by faith. You've received God's King. You've received God's Lordship, uh, God's Good Shepherd over your life. That group of people is what the Bible is calling a new Israel or in the New Testament, the church the church isn't about your birth records and your dna the church is about a group of people listen you want to be a part of our church great we want you to be here's the kind of things we're going to ask you have you put your faith in jesus christ here's the kind of things we're not going to ask you can you get it spit in a vial and let us send off your dna and see what your markers are and know what country you're from you, you say, that's crazy. No, that's exactly the way the Jews were thinking in the Old Testament and going into the New. And the Bible is saying God has a different idea of Israel. That was never what He intended Israel to be. He intended for Israel to be a multi-ethnic, global covenant community. Now, the, the prophet is talking now about not just a new Israel, but a new Jerusalem. And he's saying this is a metaphor for God's king and God's kingdom that are going to come. The old Jerusalem, let's think about what it stood for. The old Jerusalem was supposed to stand for God's rule on earth. In the old Jerusalem was a temple and and there was the glory of God. And if you wanted to go up and worship God, you went up to Jerusalem. And if you wanted to acknowledge God's rule on planet earth and God's son, you went up to Jerusalem and you kept the feasts and you made the sacrifices and you went and prayed. And old Jerusalem stood for heaven touching earth. And in Solomon's temple, literally the glory of God came down into the building. Heaven touched earth. Uh, That's what Jerusalem stands for. I want to go up and inquire of God. Good, go to Jerusalem. I want to go see, uh, go to Jerusalem. I want to go talk to God, go to Jerusalem. I want to go make my sin offering to God and tell Him I'm sorry, go up to Jerusalem. I want to go engage with God, go to Jerusalem. Why? Because there is where heaven and earth touch and there's where God's rule is symbolized and, and His glory is, is present. So now that's what old Jerusalem stood for. But now they've built a temple with no glory of God in it. Uh, next week we'll go to the book of Nehemiah and they're going to try to put the city back together. It looks like Ukraine. It's just piles of broken stones and burned out buildings. And they're going to try to put Jerusalem back together next week. And they're going to try to get this thing going so that once again, Jerusalem can be a, a city that points people to God. Now let me see if I can transition quickly. Jerusalem was supposed to be open to all the nations of the world, not walled in. 
Jerusalem was supposed to be the place that all people could come and worship God and connect with God. Not be told when they arrived, you're not welcome here and you're excluded. No women beyond this point. No Gentiles beyond this point. No, no impure people beyond this point. That was the man-made Jerusalem and I'm sure it made God sick to his stomach. Jerusalem was supposed to be something different. But the Jerusalem now of the Old Testament, end of the story, the one Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah are building over a hundred years span after the exile. These three leaders are going to rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, and try to get God's people reconstituted again. That community is not becoming the Jerusalem that God wants it to become. It yet again is turning into a racist, segregated, sexist community. This is not going to go well with God. It's not what God is telling them. Jerusalem became a community with idolatry problems. God's hottest of hot buttons. And then they became ultra-right separatists, thinking they were more pure and religious than anybody else. They had hard hearts towards others. They had a city with a temple now, but in the temple there is no presence or power of God. So now very quickly, Zerubbabel says, let me tell you three things about this new Jerusalem. Guys upstairs, follow with me quickly, and I'm not going to put all the verses up, but here's what the prophet says. And this is down really a run through of chapters 12 through 14. Here's what Zechariah says. God's rule will confront the evil of the nations. So Zechariah paints a picture in chapter 12, and he uses some language, and he said, all the nations are going to come against Jerusalem, but Jerusalem will confront them. Guys, can you put this one verse up me uh, up for me, Zechariah 12, 2? This is such an interesting illustration that God uses. He says, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that sends all the surrounding peoples reeling. Can I put that in a modern language? And don't be offended by this, but I'm going to tell you exactly what that says. God's like, I'm going to make a top-shelf margarita. I'm going to mix up a cocktail that when the nations drink it, their head's going to spin. God said, I'm going to make a cup and give it to the world to drink. And when they drink it, they're going to be like, what is happening? You say, what's that cup? He said, I'm going to get everybody against Jerusalem. And then I'm going to sweep in and rescue her. And no one will be able to touch her. Because she stands for God's rule on earth and God's kingdom. It's a very interesting passage that follows. Zechariah then jumps in. And he says, it's going to be a place where God pours out his spirit. This is chapter 12, verse 10. Uh, And uh, in those days, they're going to look on me whom they've pierced, and they're going to wail, and I'm going to give them the spirit of repentance, and they're going to come and repent and say, I'm sorry, we rejected you, Jesus. Then thirdly, Zechariah says, New Jerusalem is going to be the focal point of the nations. I will gather all nations together. All nations will come and worship me at Jerusalem. That's in Zechariah chapter number 14. I'm going to read this. Uh, Zechariah 14 passage to them guys upstairs Andy give me Zechariah 14 verse 3 the Lord will go and fight against those nations as he fights on the day of battle and on that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives this sound familiar to you at all 
On that day, God's feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will split in two from the east and the west, forming a great valley, half the mountain moving north and half moving south. Verse 8, and on that day, living water will flow out of Jerusalem. The river of life starts flowing from Jerusalem, half to the east of the Dead Sea and half to the Mediterranean in summer and in winter. The Lord will be king over the whole earth, and on that day, there will be one Lord and his name will be the only name. Now, here's what Zechariah has done for you. Zechariah said, God's going to reconstitute his rule on earth. New Jerusalem is the metaphor. And when God sets up his kingdom on earth, his name will be high and lifted up and living water. It's like, it's like we're going back to Eden. It's a picture of the Garden of Eden. Living water is flowing out. You get this in the book of Revelation again. John grabs it in the Revelation, talks about the water of life flowing out for the healing of the nations. The earth is going to be renewed. And the kingdom of God is going to pour out renewal. The earth's going to get a resurrection. The desert's going to blossom like a rose. The lion and the lamb are going to lay down together. The child can play on the serpents. All of these uh, metaphors and word pictures are given in the Scripture. And all of this good news that God keeps giving you is designed for one reason, to give you hope. Because life can be discouraging. And you're trying to live for the Lord and things don't always break your way. You get sick. You have a little hiccup at work and maybe need to find a new job. Things don't always break your way in this world we live in. And you're trying to live for the Lord. And you're trying to do what's right. And we always have this idea in our head, well, when I try to live for the Lord and try to do what's right, everything will be easier. No, it it doesn't work out that way. Sometimes your adversary... (laughs) In the kingdom of darkness rises up and sees you as a real viable threat at times. And gives you a good encounter. Things don't always go smoothly. You say, what does that mean I'm not God's child? No, that's why this is written. So that you have hope to know that no matter how hard it is. See, they're trying to rebuild Jerusalem and it's not going right for them either. God's glory hadn't shown up. The leaders aren't leading very well. Uh, they're, They're turning into a racist, segregated community again. They're trying to get things worked out, but it's just not working out very well. And you're like, gosh, this is the same old story. This is never going to get any better. And God's like, no, no, no. It's going to get better, and I'm going to get it worked out, but I've got to get Jesus here to get it worked out. It's not going to get worked out until the Son of God gets it worked out. And I'm going to send my king, I'm going to send my shepherd, and I guess the big word to you is don't reject him. <laughs> and listen, when the good shepherd shows up, say, I want to be your sheep, and get into that kingdom and be a part of, of that kingdom. So the ending of the book... It's really kind of the end story of the Old Testament. It's about hope renewed. And it's written in such a way that Zechariah has two distinct sections. And you're supposed to be sitting here now saying, well, how do these two things go together then? Because section one is like, don't be like your parents. Be a people ready for the kingdom. Section two is about Jesus as a king, Jesus as a shepherd. Don't reject the shepherd. I'm going to build new Jerusalem and I'm going to, my kingdom's coming on earth and I'm going to make it all work out. And you're looking at these two things. Be God's people, don't be like your parents. God's going to send his king. And you're trying to figure out the relationship of those two sections together. Now, in Zerubbabel, uh, in, in Zechariah's day, with Zerubbabel, Nezra, and Nehemiah, things aren't working nicely for them. They're trying to get it done, but it's, like, it's just like really the project isn't going the way they want it to. And while we're looking back, we're like, you're not leading like we hoped you would lead. And it seems like everybody is focused on going backward to this segregated 
walled-off, closed community of Israel. And God is trying to get them to see a different future. A future that involves not always a victorious king, but a suffering king. Listen, one of the big struggles they had with Jesus is he was so humble. He came from Nazareth, from a blue-collar family. He wasn't flashy or showy. He wasn't a Pharisee. Part of their struggle with Jesus, he didn't fit their image of what they thought God's king should be. And I'm thinking now, well, that's fine because the people themselves don't fit God's image of what he thinks they should be. They're this very segregated, racist community. And God comes to them with a message that says the kingdom is here, but I want Jerusalem to be open to all nations. I want all nations to come here and find God. I want to build a kingdom that's different than these Greek, Roman, Persian, Babylon kingdoms. Let's not wipe out millions of people with hand-to-hand combat. Let's treat people with love and respect. And let's share the gospel with them. I want a kingdom where God is loved and obeyed and God's word rules. The kingdom will come. And they're like, when? It's always the answer. God's like, no, it's not like that. You need to focus on being God's kingdom people right now. Now now start applying this to you. You need to focus on being God's kingdom person right now. Because Jesus will come again. And the kingdom is already here. And if you're not a part of God's kingdom, you need to be saying to God this morning, God, I want to be a part of your kingdom. God, receive me as one of your kingdom citizens. I'll tell you this week when you go to live out your life in God's kingdom, I just want to remind you, we do things a little differently than the other kingdoms. They intimidate you and coerce you and force you to do whatever they want you to do. In God's kingdom, love is our highest ethic. So in God's kingdom, we love God with all our heart, all our mind, and all our soul, and we love our neighbor as ourselves. In God's kingdom, we love those who are like us, and we also love those who are not like us. For those of you who have the mindset that one day God's kingdom will come, I need to shock you a little bit this morning out of that thinking and remind you that God's kingdom is already here. It arrived when the king arrived 2,000 years ago and started preaching the kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of God is here, the kingdom of God is near. That's when the kingdom broke out on planet earth. It's in its inaugural phase, I guess we would say still, its infancy, it's still growing, it's still spreading, it's gone global. I want to thank you so much because every week when you give to missions here, you're giving to that global spreading of God's kingdom. We try to show you every week how your funds are being used to change people's lives around the world. Jesus is not universally accepted right now as king. So we know that the kingdom's going to take a giant leap forward one day when he does appear again and it becomes fully, fully uh, integrated in planet earth. But even now, this is Jesus' big ask of you. Live now as citizens of God's kingdom. Embrace your divine vocation as the new Israel. Your vocation is to point people to God. 
Now, that always means a sermon. It doesn't always mean confrontation. Sometimes it just means, you know, like by your work ethic, people say you're kind of a different kind of person. You're pointing people to God. Sometimes it's by a different attitude. Sometimes it's by love. Sometimes it's by compassion. And the Holy Spirit will show you what to do in the right moment so that you can live out being God's Israel in His kingdom. My greatest challenge to you this morning is this. Zechariah told his people, get ready for God's kingdom to come. 400 years ago. John the Baptist told his people, repent for the kingdom of heaven is now. Jesus stepped on the scene and said to the people, repent for the kingdom is now. Be God. And I'm just going to take their message and bring it forward to you this morning and say God's kingdom is here. You're a part of it, I pray. And if you're not, I pray you will be this morning. For all of you who are part of God's kingdom, fully embrace what it means to be God's kingdom representative. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed this morning. Basically, I'm going to ask you to update the story. You just take the story that I've been telling and you've got to lay it down on your life this morning and say, here's what it looks like applied to 2022 in the fall. You know, uh, in a week, you're going to be engaged in the community out here on this lawn. What does it look like to be the light of the world out here, engaging the community? In a few months, the world is very open to hear the message of God's sending His Son to Bethlehem to be born. What does it mean? What does it mean for us to be God's representatives in the kingdom? pointing people to God during this holiday season if you're not a part of the kingdom I want to give you this challenge there are deacons in the back of the room right now who are expert soul winners they know exactly how to pray with you and lead you to receive Christ as your king this morning if you've never done that just in this stillness just slip out of your seat head to the back of the room and walk up to one of those uh, men or women and just say would you pray with me I need to receive Christ today that's all you have to say they know how to take it from there and help you you don't need to be embarrassed everybody in this room has either done that or praying for you to do it I can tell you my big ask this morning is to God's people I'm challenging you this morning to grab the story as your story and live out your part of the story this week. Not the rest of your life. It's too big of a challenge. And we can't see that far. I'm just saying like for the next seven days. Could you just commit yourself to God this morning. And say God for the next seven days. I really want to be a. That angled mirror reflecting you to the world. God I, I want to just. In these seven days really grab up my vocation. As what it means to be a kingdom representative. And a living image of God. God, would you help me do that this week? Many of you are young in your faith. You haven't been saved a long time and you haven't really been discipled to a place of maturity yet. And that's in your future, you know. I want to challenge you that you would just let God transform you in these days as you're a young Christian. Let God transform you through the worship 
this worship we do every week has a transforming quality on your life. Let God transform you through prayer. If you want to pray quietly, fine. If you want to pray out loud, okay. If you want to be like Luz and write it all out in a journal, okay. But through that talking to God process we call prayer, it changes you. It doesn't convince God to do this or that. What it does is it changes you to be more like God. Many of you right now are learning to give. Giving is a transformation process. We work hard for our wealth, for our money. We're judicious on how we use it. And to give 10, 15, 20, 30% of it away to the work of God, it takes a lot of faith and a lot of spiritual growth. And some of you are growing in that. Let God transform you in this, especially this season. Say, God, I want to be a giver. God, would you bless me in such a way that I could have my needs met and give lavishly? You'll find it transformative when you approach it this way. Discipleship is the process of transformation. If you're not in a discipleship group, we want you in one. If we can help you with that, we gladly will. Father, your people are bowed before you this morning, just recommitting our lives to you. Lord, understanding freshly this morning that we are part of the story. We are your Israel we are your new Jerusalem we're part of your kingdom we are your people by covenant by faith in Jesus Christ and God we want our lives to be what you want them to be we want to embrace our divine vocation of imaging you to this world that you've created God this week we dedicate ourselves to that mission to the mission of being your kingdom representatives. Lord, help us to love. Lord, help us to be optimistic. Lord, help us to speak hope into people's lives. And God, I pray that you would transform us as we do and bless us as we do, as we embrace what it means to be your people. And Lord, I pray as we live that out, you would draw all men and women to you. This is our prayer as a church family. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. There is a prayer in the Bible, a passage of Scripture that talks about God's kingdom coming. And it's all thought it appropriate this morning since we just preached about God sending His King and setting up His kingdom. Jesus taught His disciples to pray that God's will would be done on earth as it's being done in heaven. That God's kingdom would come here as God already rules in the heavens, He would rule here on earth as well. So I'm going to ask you to say the Lord's Prayer with me this morning and we'll be dismissed at the end. It comes from Matthew chapter number 6. Jesus said, this then is how you should pray. If you just would say it with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors.
And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. God bless you. You're dismissed. See you next Sunday.